Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today is Kevin Ingram. He, of course, the sideline reporter for Vanderbilt Football. The news today is sponsored by Sutherland and Belk, an SEC sports-loving injury law firm in Nashville. These folks will shoot you straight on your rights and your options when you have been injured in an accident. Give them a call at 615-846-6200 to get your questions answered. You can also visit them online at sbinjurylaw.com and tell them you heard about it on the Vandy Sports Podcast. Vanderbilt and South Carolina kick off Saturday. That game will be 11 o'clock Central on the SEC Network. Rain is moving into the Nashville area on late Friday. Looks like it will be here for the entire weekend. So anyway, could be a wet football game between Vanderbilt and South Carolina on Saturday. Temperature expected to be in the high 60s and low 70s. Kevin Ingram appears on our guest line today. The guest line is presented by Bowl and Branch, started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue how comfortable Bowl and Branch sheets could be until I got some. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code VANDY and get $50 off your first set of sheets. Kevin Ingram joins us. He is a sideline, is an announcer or reporter for Vanderbilt football. I feel like I've used both terms interchangeably, but you're the pro here. Which one do you prefer, Kevin? I prefer talent, actually, but uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Whatever, uh, what what to choose? <laughs> well, I figure the talent's never really been in question, so that goes without saying. <laughs> <laughs> talent in quotations in, uh, in my instance here <laughs> it's like the line in Ferris Bueller um, you know relax I'm a professional uh, <laughs> yeah, again professional in quotations too <laughs> right well anyway pair of amateurs will uh, we'll hammer this out either way right 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 we'll, we'll, we'll give it our best shot here well your thoughts on the LSU game as the sideline reporter where you actually got to be on the sideline this year. So talk to us about what you saw from down on the field last week. Um, yeah, it was an interesting experience. First of all, just the experience of the game itself. It's an empty stadium except for, you know, some students in the one end zone. Uh, being on the sideline was kind of tricky because you weren't really supposed to go through the box where the players were, which is, has been extended from the 15 to the 15. So I basically hung out in the lower part of the stands for most of the game, which was also kind of a strange vantage point because I never really watched a game from there. And the thing is, if you decide you want to go sit on the other end of the field, you just hop up and walk down there. There's nobody really up there except for maybe a, you know, a few extra players that weren't dressed and a, you know, a couple staff people. Other than that, it was, the whole place was empty. So I, I could kind of pick out wherever I wanted to go to sit. Uh, as far as the game itself, uh, Vanderbilt came out and played okay in the first half. Really a big turning point was right before halftime. Uh, they had a chance to punch it in and make it 21 to 14. And not only did they not get a touchdown, they also missed a close field goal, which was just a killer. And that was a, a big momentum shift. LSU came out in the second half and, and really just took control of the game. And they, they shut them out and LSU added about three more touchdowns and uh, 41 to seven was the final, but uh, not, not quite the, uh, the close performance of game one against Texas A&M. It was, uh, 
It was uh, all LSU, especially in the in the second half of that game last Saturday. It's a tough question, but where do you sense LSU's season is heading? I mean, you think we all know they're not as good as last year's team, but they always have talent. I know that they came off a bad week one, which that happened to a lot of teams this year. Week one to week two was not very indicative of what we wound up seeing. But what are your thoughts on when we go to the end of the year and all 10 games have been played, hopefully, what kind of season do you think LSU will have had? I think LSU is going to have a pretty decent season in the end. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up maybe like seven and three or something like that. Uh, you know, they, they lost to Mississippi State and they played terrible pass defense in that game. They also didn't have Stingley in that game and he was back for Vanderbilt. And that made a huge difference. The one thing that gets me about LSU year after year is the ridiculous amount of talent they put on that football field. The, the athletes just looking out there, I, I remember just making a mental note a couple of times during that game last week, just at the, the sheer athleticism and size of those players that LSU has. Um, I, I think they'll be fine. They have a lot of new starters all over the place. They basically had to revamp after all the uh, the draft picks they lost. But, you know, I, I like the quarterback. Uh, I, there, I thought there was a lot to like about that team. Their receivers played pretty well. And one thing that Vanderbilt just didn't do very well was was tackle. That they, they absolutely have to do better in that department if they're going to have success this year. I, I talked to Ted Roof some about that yesterday. And, um, I mean, there would, be, there would be so many times when they were just going to hand on somebody early in a play, just couldn't get them to the ground. And uh, next thing you know, receiver, running back scores free and gets a big gain. And, you know, it's, it's one of those explosive plays everybody talks about. But, uh, you know, from Vanderbilt's standpoint, they didn't do a very good job of getting them to the ground when they got a hand on folks. But you know, as far as LSU goes, I, I really think they're going to be pretty good. Uh, I think they'll be fine. Maybe, you know, they're obviously not going to go 15-0 and 0 or anything like that. I mean, that was a, probably a generational team for that program. But uh, I, I think they're headed in the right direction. What was your observation in terms of watching Vanderbilt's receivers downfield? Because I've said this on another podcast, so I apologize for re- repetition here but it just felt like the second half was on a loop where it was seals gets the snap he rolls right rolls right finds nothing throws it out of bounds or gets sacked yeah how much of that was on the guys downfield not getting separation yeah i think there was some of that and i I think lsu's defensive backs probably had something to do with that too um amir abdul rahman was was not as healthy and not as effective as he was in the opener. Uh, I think they're, they're hoping to have a couple guys back this week and uh, hopefully that will help them in the receiver. Hey, you're right. Uh, guys just weren't as available. Heels would roll back to just dump the football out of bounds before he gets too close to the sideline because, you know, that that's just one of those decisions that you have to learn to make uh, effectively to play quarterback at this level was you can roll out and buy yourself some time, but you got to know when, it, when it's over and you just got to get rid of the football. Any particular thoughts on the matchup with South Carolina? I look at places where Vanderbilt can maybe win the game or make plays to win a game. And one thing that sticks out is they've given up eight sacks. So you try to look for a place where an opponent is weak, where you can do some things. And that's the first thing that really sticks out to me, Kevin. Yeah, Vanderbilt has to get a much better pass rush against South Carolina than it did against LSU. They did a, did a pretty good job in that department against A&M in the first game, but yeah, I have to get some pressure on the quarterback. Thing is, for South Carolina, you know, Helensky is not the starter. Uh, you know, the, the starter is the uh, graduate transfer from Colorado State, who's a really experienced player. I know he's had some knee injuries and so forth, but you know, Carolina's done some pretty good things offensively the first three weeks. Uh, we'll, we'll see if that continues. 
know, Shai Smith's a really experienced receiver, and they, they got a good back, too. So, you know, they, they got a few weapons on offense. But uh, th- to me, this feels like a whole lot more winnable football game than LSU did. Uh, but they are going to have to get better pressure on the quarterback. They just didn't do a very good job against LSU, and, and they got – you know, they, they, they paid for it in that second half, especially. So um, yeah, just get better tackling, better pressure. Um, and, and then on offense, they're going to have to stay on the field. The one thing South Carolina does especially well, and or at least has to these first two games uh, where they've played Tennessee and Florida so far, uh, they, they've gotten off the field on third down. They've done a good job in that department. So Vanderbilt, uh, and this is, again, something I discussed with Todd Fitch yesterday, you got to get yourself in those – third down situations where it's, it's not third and 12. It's more like third and five. I mean, that's kind of football one-on-one, but you know, they're, they're going to have to have third and manageable when you get to that spot. Well, the other side of the ball, the thing that sticks out is Carolina's given up 8.7 yards per pass. Now look, one of those games and we're in a two game sample size right now is Florida and Kyle Trask. And that can make a lot of numbers skewed after two games, but Carolina has had issues with containing big plays. I think it has given up 10 explosive pass plays. I'm presuming that's defined as 20 yards or more, but it's just been one thing after another with them. It's not one root cause, but that's the thing yeah. you get in this kind of game and the recipe to win you saw Vanderbilt do half of it in the A&M game, which was get to the quarterback and make things happen and force turnovers. The other half was being able to generate big plays, and that's what happened against Missouri last year, right? You get Missouri in a low-scoring game, and you make a play right yeah. when you have to. So I'm looking at this on paper, and I still think Carolina wins the football game, but you look at this, and statistically speaking, you can see a path to where they could pull an upset. Yeah, I'm with you, Chris. I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, yeah, maybe you, it is a little more of a low-scoring game, and you, you hit on one of those big plays, or you know maybe more than one, obviously. But I, I think a factor in this, too, could potentially be the weather. This is going to be the first game where it's probably going to rain. The, the, the percentage of rain is pretty high throughout the game tomorrow. Um, I, I think that could, could be a factor. I mean, you're going to have to – if you're Vanderbilt on offense, you've got to hang on to the football and the ball security and those things are going to be key. You're going to have to really have some effective work out of the running backs. And then, you know, defensively, maybe it's a, it's a deal where you can get a, get a turnover or two just by, by nature of the football being slippery or somebody making a mistake or somebody slips. You know, you, you never know what might happen when, you know, the, the weather gets bad and if it's pouring down rain or whatever. I mean, maybe that's the equalizer for Vanderbilt. So uh, that, that'll be something to watch for tomorrow as well. Well, and for folks who are listening out of the area, I guess some of that hurricane weather is making its way towards us. I am sitting here at my place in Franklin, which is just south of Nashville, for folks who don't know. It's 345 on Friday afternoon, and we've started to get some sprinkles uh, not long before we started this podcast. So I have a feeling, as you said, there's a lot more of that to come. Yeah, it, it sprinkles right now, but it's supposed to be way more than this as we get into uh, later on tonight. And then you know, tomorrow morning and, and throughout a whole lot of the day on Saturday, it's supposed to rain. So um, I, it may let up at points. I've seen I've been looking at the weather forecast all week because it's one of those things you got to know how to dress and what to be prepared for if you're going to be outside on the sideline. So I, I learned that years ago. I'm pretty sure we're going to see rain at least for You've done so many of these. You've got to have like a classic weather nightmare sideline announcer story in there somewhere, right? <laughs> um, the one that comes to mind the most, 
And I usually tell this story if I go speak somewhere and, and, and I probably haven't used it as much because Bobby Johnson is no longer the coach. Uh, you know, he hasn't been, or I should say, hasn't been the coach there for a while. The first year I did the games, which was in 2002, we were at Auburn, you know, and it was Jay Cutler's, you know, red shirt freshman year playing quarterback. And it opened up and absolutely poured the whole game. I always said it was like, you know, the, the scenes when Forrest Gump was in Vietnam, it, it was like that. It was big old fat rain, little bitty stinging rain. We, we saw everything. And so, I mean, it, it just poured the whole game. It was miserable. We were all soaked when the game was over. And so we get to the locker room. You know, I, I go down to where our, our radio gear is located. And, and the way it will usually work, it's a little different this year with all the COVID restrictions and so forth. But um, I, I would get the radio gear ready. And then we would bring a, a player in. And I would interview the player for that segment. And then Coach Johnson would come and sit down. And then he would do his interview with Joe. I'd give him the, the headphones and the microphone. And he would talk to Joe Fisher. So I do my interview. And it's Hunter Hillemeyer. And that goes fine. You know, I do the interview. And then Coach Johnson comes in and sits down. And he does the first segment with Joe. And then, you know, I'm kind of off to the side. I'm sort of paying attention. I may be like looking at a stat page or whatever, but I'm kind of keeping an eye on what's going on. So we go to the commercial break. And then a, a minute or so later, I look up and Coach Johnson is just buck naked. He's sitting there on the, this metal folding chair. He is the, the equipment manager that come along and, you know, they're, they're collecting all the gear to take so they can wash. And so Coach Johnson is just, he, he's just sitting there. And uh, I, I remember thinking, man, I bet that chair is cold. Uh, but that, that's kind of the one classic weather story I have. I've seen a little bit of everything in the years I've done this stuff. Um, we, there was a game at Wake Forest, which I think was by far the coldest game we ever did. Uh, it was, it was sleet. It was probably 38 in sleet. It was nasty. Uh, a couple really cold games. Uh, one was at Kentucky. Another one was music city bowl, which, uh, both those were big wins. So it, it was, it's always uh, more fun when the, when the weather's bad, if you can uh, come out on, on the better side of things. But, yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of rain games. Uh, it just kind of comes with the territory. But, man, that one at Auburn, that's about as hard as I've seen it rain at the Southeastern Conference football game. I've had it on mute, but I'm just sitting here laughing, listening to the Bobby Johnson story. And, and sometimes just a little bit of heads up is really nice to have, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it might have been a little bit. It might have been nice to have a little heads up. But um, it, it was just so funny to see this scene because, you know, Bobby – he kind of has this Steve Martin look, you know, guy, white haired guy just holding a microphone, sitting there doing the interview. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh man, <laughs> if anybody could see this scene, they, they probably wouldn't believe it. Uh, yeah, I think I'll do that interview soak rather than that way, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> the, I've heard of awkward interviews, but I believe that takes the cake. Well, I mean, it's just one of those things you, you know how it is. You go in a locker room and you just got to you keep, keep, keep your head up, look, look straight forward. Exactly. I'm going to take us to the mailbag that is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood who can take care of all your insurance needs. Call him today at 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at joshuamintonhq or facebook.com forward slash jdmintonhq. He is my insurance agent. Give him a try and tell him you heard about it on the Vandy Sports Podcast. This one from Ann Arbor Door has Derricky Wright played this year. Sounds like he could play anything from safety to tight end. Any idea 
and what position he might play. No, Kevin, I don't know if you've stumbled onto any intelligence that I haven't, but in camp he was a safety, and frankly I'm surprised we have not seen him on the field. I counted 11 on the depth chart going into the season, and in that first game they played pretty much everybody. And, and again, this past week, uh, I know Jalen Mahoney, I believe it was, was uh, out, and uh, so supposed to be back this week. Uh, I'm not sure about Wright, though. I, I would uh, have to ask somebody on that one. Yeah, I think that probably what happened is Kaufman jumped up and took his playing time and, and Jerkins, too. I just think those are two young safeties I think they're going to want to go with for a while. I mean, generally, when you come in as a true freshman and you're starting from your first game, you're not going anywhere until you want to. And I think with Jerkins, he's a kid who early in the year, I think before injury last season, looked pretty good. So I don't know if they can get right at linebacker because he's big enough to play that. Uh, like someone said, he was a tight end in high school. But I think he's one of those athletes who eventually they find him a way to get on the field just because he is pretty talented. Yeah, it's funny. Those, those guys that can play a lot of spots. I mean, you, you just want to find somewhere to plug him in and, and put him out there. I, I like the way Jerkins has played. He's been really effective the last couple of games. Seems to be around the football a lot and makes some plays. Let's see. The next one is from P. Dor. How would you describe Vanderbilt's offensive style the past two games? How does the current scheme compare to past offenses run by Todd Fitch? As far as describing what we've seen, I mean, we've seen a lot of seen a lot of run game, really, and I, I like the way the running backs have played. I, I think those those two that have played um, have, have done well. Now they're supposed to have Keon Henry Brooks back uh, this week. He's supposed to play, or at least uh, is expected to. We'll see. We'll see if he uh, adds something to the mix there. But you know, it's I, I don't know if it's been as uh, maybe as, as spread out or whatever as uh, as you might expect out of Todd Fitch. One thing uh, one thing I really liked in the opener was when they went up tempo, and uh, it, it felt like that was really an effective way for them to play. Uh, Seals was able to spread the football around, hit a lot of different targets. And uh, I, I thought it really worked well. I don't think that's something they want to do all the time. But you know, if, you, if you have a spot in the game where you can jump into that a little bit, uh, it probably serves you well. And, and, it, and it did in those spots in that A&M game. HMHS changes the subject on us to Vanderbilt Baseball, says, do you have a sense of where Vanderbilt will get its offensive punch in baseball this season? Uh, I've seen them some in their fall training. Some of the faces are going to be pretty familiar when the, the season actually gets here. Um, uh, Isaiah Thomas, I think, is you're, you're going to count on that bat for one thing. But, um, you know, there, there are a couple of guys I've seen that uh, kind of strike my fancy a little bit. There's a young man named Enrique Bradfield who uh, is, is a freshman outfielder. And you talk about wheels. That guy can move. That that has to be. He has to be one of the fastest players I've seen on that field for Vanderbilt. Um, my one. The, the thing I wonder was really one of the things I wondered going into the 2020 season is where the power is going to come from. The 2019 team, no lead was insurmountable for them. They had so, you know so much thunder in those bats. The 2020 team was going to be a little different. And I think I think this coming team in spring may be the same thing. Um, my, my question is where the, the, uh, as far as, you know, the power and the home runs, where that might come from. But I, I think you're going to see a, a team that has the speed to make some things happen on the base pass. Yeah, that's going to be a very interesting dynamic of their offense next year, because you've seen Tim do it both ways. They didn't need to run last year because they had all those guys to hit doubles and home runs, but 
now that they've uh, got some guys, and of course Cooper Davis, another one of those kids who can just fly, you did see Tim early in his career where they didn't have the power bats across the lineup play a lot of those things, taking third on a single, uh, getting stolen bases, being aggressive on wild pitches. I think that you will see a little bit of a mix of that, maybe more towards the way it was, you know, maybe 15, 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Chris. I, I think playing small ball has really been been the rule more than the exception when it comes to this program under Tim Corbin. That they've spent a lot of time on base running and practicing bunting. I mean, they have they had a bunt scrimmage the other day where they, they get out there and really work on those elements. Um, but you, you know, the, the 2019 team. I mean, that was one of the greatest college teams of all time. They had pretty much everything you can think of. But I really like Cooper Davis at the top of the lineup. He's a he's a very good leadoff man. I mean, he's one of those dudes that can put down that bunt if he gets it past the mound, it's over. But, yeah, he could one of the gap gets played some. The, the roster looks very different though. There are there are a lot of you know players that I'm I'm looking at for the first time. 17 newcomers in this group, but the the, the big guns are going to be those starting pitchers. Uh, if you can score any kind of runs at all with the, the guys that are going to run out there on the weekend, I think they're going to be in good shape. HMHS wants to know who might surprise us on the diamond in 2021. Boy, that's a great question because you have, you know, obviously you have so many young players. I think one thing to look for is how the catching battle is going to shape up because you have CJ Rodriguez who played a lot last year. You have Max Romero. You have a, you know, a, a couple more guys back there. That, that's going to be an interesting competition for me. You know, Ty Duvall's not around anymore. Uh, you know, after you know his last season last year. Um, Rodriguez would look like the incumbent, but I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how that that little. Uh, uh, set of players at that spot shape up because you you have several who are very capable back there behind the plate for sure. Yeah, they have a glut of catching talent. I don't know that I ever remember a roster of theirs being that deep with catchers. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things you're probably going to find some spots for for those guys to maybe play somewhere else if if the bats are working. All right, I'm gonna switch gears on you one more time this is the last question this is different baseball hmhs says what do the reds need to do in the offseason to take the next step towards an mlb championship next year more timely hitting might be a good place to start that that's been such a theme for this for the reds the last couple of years just not being able to get that big hit in that big spot and you know that first playoff game against atlanta was so frustrating because like ninth, tenth, maybe in the twelfth inning, there are about two or three different times where you gotta score a run right there when you have bases loaded and one out or first and third and nobody out or whatever the situations were, you gotta come out of there with something. All you had to do was score one run and you, you probably win that game. Uh to me that's a that's a huge thing for them. Their bullpen's gotta get a little better. Uh Trevor Bauer he may be crazy, but man, that dude has got some big league stuff. If they can figure out a way to bring him back, I, that would be fine with me. He was so good. Their starting pitching was as good as I can remember uh, from a Reds team in a long, long time. But playing in that ballpark, you, you got to be able to, to score on a consistent basis. Their team batting average was just awful. I mean, it was down at the bottom of the league, but at times they would score plenty of runs because they had a lot of power. The guys might not hit for average, but they could uh, hit it over the fence. Uh, but, yeah, there's just a, a few things. I, I, hitting for a better average is bound to help. I, I know that's not the, you know, the, the in vogue thing now and, and the way stats are analyzed, but, you know, you, you can't just sit back and wait for a home run all the time. 
Well, to be fair, when you run into Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz like that in the playoffs, that's just what's going to happen to you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that not yeah, the most yeah. unexpected thing ever? I mean, this little five-game run they've had in the playoffs with four shutouts, I don't think that was anywhere on anybody's radar at any point. No, like, this not, might not happen. And Kyle Wright was terrific. I was so happy for him with the way he pitched in that last game against the Marlins. Uh, I was a little worried about him back earlier in the season. I remember seeing him back in uh, toward the end of July, early August, and he, he was really having trouble throwing strikes. He was walking a lot of hitters. And to me, it seemed like he was throwing too much breaking stuff early in the count. I wanted to see him just rely on the fastball more. If you can dial it up to 97, then throw 97 and locate it for strikes. But I was super happy for him. He's, he always seemed like a really good dude, and he has great stuff. He just, just looks the part of a, a good big league pitcher. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because when I watched him, I, I was watching off and on in game three. I had some other stuff I had to take care of, but it seemed like literally everything he threw was that slider. Yeah. Yeah, but gosh, I mean, just has, has great stuff. And, and, and again, man, I'm, I'm just thinking if, you know, I'm no pitching coach. I didn't pitch in the big leagues, but if, if I could throw 97, I'm relying on the fastball more often than not. But, you know, yeah, well, that's not, you know, that's not to say he doesn't have great breaking stuff, but yeah, he, he he'll get it figured out, I think, and have a nice career. But that that was that was one of those. You're super happy for that guy doing it in the postseason where it really counts. Kevin, the broadcast tomorrow, I believe, is on ninety three point three FM in Nashville. It's also on the VU Commodores app. Uh, tell folks about when you come on, what's on the pregame show, and where they can find you on social media, please. Yes, we on the at nine thirty on Saturday morning. And uh, we'll have kind of our usual lineup of, uh, of coaches and, uh, and, and player interviews and that sort of thing. Norman Jordan and I will do the first 45 minutes or so. And, and uh, we've been uh, streaming and do some video content. Uh, you can find it on all the different social media channels, uh, the, the Vanderbilt Face- Athletics, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. It's all there. Uh, so just check it out. And uh, the first 45 minutes, we will stream uh, video on there. And, and during the breaks, we'll have some fun content for you. So uh, some, some different uh, – little segments and interviews that uh, uh, video folks have put together. So should be fun. But again, starting at 930 on Saturday morning. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to catching you next week, hopefully. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Chris. He's Kevin Ingram, sideline reporter for Vanderbilt Football. I am Chris Lee, the host of the Vandy Sports Podcast. We appreciate you listening. We will be back with more episodes later next week.